Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 395 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab, The Tour, Part 2. We're going to finish our tour of Skylab today. If you recall last time, we stopped at the upper portion of the workshop dome. Two astronaut maneuvering units were also kept in the upper dome area. One was a backpack device that was the forerunner of the manned maneuvering unit later used on some space shuttle missions and of the safer unit, which stands for Simplified Aid for EVA Rescue. SAFER was used on the International Space Station. Interestingly enough, Joe Kerwin, a member of the Skylab crew that did not get to test the maneuvering unit, was actually a co-inventor of the SAFER unit while working at Lockheed Martin years later. The other device was a maneuvering aid that astronauts operated with their feet rather than their hands. Storage of food supplies for all three missions was located in the upper deck as well as water storage and a refrigerator. Once again, here is Jack Lausma to continue our tour. As we move around this way, we have some food storage lockers. Here's extra food. Each one of these packages contains six days' worth of food for three men. It all comes in these cans. Our menu repeats itself every six days. So every sixth day we come up here, take our food down to the boardroom, and restock our pantry. It all comes in cans, big ones and little ones. Inside the cans are plastic containers, to which we can put water, rehydrate our food. We also have some frozen food. Our frozen food is stored in these refrigerators right over here, or these freezers. Much as you would store your frozen food at home. Now, we don't have as much frozen food as we do regular food. One of these packages will last three men for 28 days. We have about one frozen food item per day. That includes steak, ice cream, 
Also on the upper deck was a very heavy steel vault for film storage. Of course, it wasn't heavy in space. A few experiments were also located in this area, including Skylab's equivalent of bathroom scales, the body mass measurement device, which the astronauts used to keep track of how much weight they had lost or gained. Down below the dome lockers, we have water tanks. These are our water tanks. All the water that we have on the Skylab was launched in the Skylab as you see it now. And each mission uses some of these water tanks. Some of it is used for the wardroom, where we mix our food and drink it. And other tanks are used for in the waste management compartment for cleaning and that kind of thing. The water in these tanks has iodine injected into it periodically to keep it pure. We have a way of testing this water, much like you test the water in a swimming pool. And by, determine, by looking at its color, we can determine how much iodine is in it. And then we have a way of adding some, should we need to do so. Down over here, there's a locker where we keep our film. Of course, in space, our film would all become irradiated if we did not have a uh, good way to protect it. So we have it in this heavy vault, stored in drawers. Whenever we want some film, we come in here and we get it. For example, we can pull it out right here. There's a film magazine for a motion picture camera. Oh, we have film down here for Earth Resources cameras. These are all cassettes that are loaded into our Earth Resources cameras when we want to take pictures with those cameras. This whole vault is full of film and it's protected by the heavy metal around it. Streaks in it are getting cloudy because of the radiation in space. The upper floor of the workshop also featured a pair of airlocks, but these were too small for a person to go through. They were only about 10 inches square. These were the two scientific airlocks, abbreviated SALS. They were designed for solar physics, astronomy, earth photography, and space exposure experiments, allowing astronauts to pass material samples through to see how they weathered in the harsh environment outside Skylab. The two scientific airlocks were placed on opposite sides of the workshop from each other. The solar airlock pointed in the same direction as the Apollo telescope, while the anti-solar scientific airlock faced in the opposite direction. It turned out the solar-facing airlock would be an important part of addressing problems that occurred during launch. Around this way, we come to an object that's hanging on the wall here, and what we call an airlock. This side of the spacecraft, we have a scientific airlock. Basically what a scientific airlock is is a, a hole in the spacecraft. What we do is we take an experiment and seal it up to the scientific airlock so that our air won't leak out. And then there's a door in there that we can open up. And when we open this door, we can extend whatever is inside this experiment out. For example, in here is a mirror that we can point different directions to look at the stars and to take 
a lot of data and um, many very faint stars that we can't see with the naked eye. We have other experiments that we can put in there as well, which are all located on the floor right here. They all do different types of things and take different types of data. On the other side of the spacecraft, we also have a scientific airlock. This particular one looks at the sun. The one we were just at looks opposite from the sun. The last item located at the top of the dome was Skylab's unofficial lost and found area. Most people back on Earth have trouble keeping up with small items like pencils, notes, paper clips, etc. But we on Earth have limited areas that we have to search because of gravity. In essence, we live in a two-dimensional world such that objects usually get moved around horizontally. They don't float away vertically in a third dimension, like a feather might do. However, space is different. Unless an item is tethered or tied down, it will float away. Unfortunately, our eyes and our minds have been conditioned all our lives to look only on the tops of surfaces to find lost items. We may not notice a small item floating in space, or we may not look in all the more obscure places a lost article may have become lodged. However, in Skylab, they got lucky. The very slow air circulation from the lower decks up to the single air intake duct in the top of the dome slowly moved all drifting objects to come to it if they didn't get stuck somewhere else. The astronauts discovered that each morning when they woke up, they could find many of their small lost objects on the screen of the air intake duct. Sometimes you just get lucky with your design. Okay, continuing with the tour. Located at the bottom of each of the workshop's two stories were floors with an open grid construction that was another fortunate design made during Skylab's development. Remember, Skylab was originally designed to be a wet workshop. The S-4B would be used as a booster, then fitted by the astronauts as an orbiting workshop. Naturally, during the wet workshop design, engineers looked at whether any of the station's infrastructure could be included in the S-4B stage while it was being used as a fuel tank up to and during the launch. They reasoned that anything that could be built into the tank would mean mass that would not have to be carried up later and would also reduce the construction work that the crew would have to do. The tricky part was that any pre-construction would have to be something that could withstand the environment of a S-4B field with cryogenic propellants. Also, it could not pose a risk of igniting the propellants, and it must not interfere with the function of the rocket stage. One obvious item that the engineers could include was the floors of the workshop. Of course, solid floors could not be used since they would impede the flow of fuel through the tank. 
Therefore, special floors were designed with a grid pattern that would allow fuel to flow through them. After the change was made from the wet workshop to the dry, the grid pattern floors were no longer needed for their original purpose. But the design was kept for the dry workshop because the designers realized that the grid could serve another purpose as well, solving one of the challenges of life in microgravity. The Skylab astronauts were furnished with special shoes that had triangular fittings attached to their soles. The shoes' triangular fittings would fit into the triangular angles that made up the floor's grid pattern, and the astronauts could lock themselves in place with a small rotation of their foot. This allowed the astronauts to stand in place on the floor without the help of gravity. Finally, we have reached the farthest point from the command module, the bottom story of the Skylab. This was the primary living area of the space station and included its bedrooms, bathroom, kitchen, and gym. This area was divided into four major sections. One, the sleep compartments. Two, the waste management compartment. Three, the wardroom. And four, the experiment area. We uh, located on the crew quarters deck. This is where we do most of our living and eating and some of our experimental work. Off to my left here, you can see the control panel for this part of the Skylab. This is where we control our electrical power and refrigeration system. For example, over here is our thermal control. Our thermostat for controlling the temperature, as well as all this over here. This also controls our thermal control system, circuit breakers for our habitability uh, support system. For example, these are the uh, circuit breakers for our water tanks. Here are the circuit breakers that co control the electrical power to our food trays. We move around here, we have uh, some more circuit breakers that, uh, just like those you have in your home, for controlling the electrical power to all of our accessory outlets, much as you would control electric electricity to the plugs in your walls. Skylab had three bedrooms, or sleep compartments, one for each of the astronauts aboard. To save space, the beds were arranged vertically in the quarters. In microgravity, to keep a sleeper in place, the beds were really sleeping bags with extra slits and a vent for the astronauts' comfort. The beds were mounted on an aluminum frame with a firm sheet of plastic stretched between it to work as a mattress. A privacy curtain was used instead of a door at the entrance to each sleep compartment. Each sleep compartment had storage lockers for the astronauts to keep their personal items and an intercom for communications. Well, let's move on around to some of our living quarters. I'll move in right now to the uh, bunk area compartment. It's rather small, but it's adequate. The bunk is on the wall, as you notice. It's not lying horizontally as it might in, uh, on Earth, but it's 
fastened to the wall, so we sleep vertically. This is Al's bunk. He likes to sleep upside down because the ventilation's better. We sleep very well. We sleep six to seven hours a night. We sleep very hard. It's not any problem at all getting used to sleeping in zero G. As we move on in here, you see we have some of our uh, personal belongings. We have lockers to keep our some of our clothes and other personal things in. We even have music. We have these tape recorders that uh, we can play music anywhere in the spacecraft. We have all brought some of our favorite music along to play whenever uh, we feel like it. And we have uh, also have intercom boxes and uh, sleep compartments in the event that we have a master alarm or a caution warning in the night. Uh, we can be warmed and or warned and notified that we have to get up and take care of a problem. I'll uh, see if I can demonstrate getting into one of these bunks. This bunk, as you notice, has one small hole at the top. I may have a little difficulty getting in with my clothes on, but I'll give it a try. It's easy to float right up. Just jump in, pull it up around you. In this manner. We have arm holes. We have an inner blanket, which is a uh, a loose netting uh, if you want to sleep cool and we have an outer blanket as well which we can pull up when it gets a little cooler which it does sometimes in the night around here and these uh, elastic straps are designed to uh, keep you sort of restrained uh, if you like them some of the guys don't like them don't need them but others uh, like to have a little feeling of solid uh, bed against their back and uh, so they use that the intercoms in the sleep quarters were among several located around the station. The intercoms were used in several ways. They facilitated communications both with the ground and throughout the station. Due to low air pressure on Skylab, sound waves would not carry far. This made it difficult to be heard in other parts of the station. And this is where the intercom system came in. There were a couple of ways to communicate with the ground. The first way was to use the intercom's A channel. The A channel allowed real-time conversations with mission control. The other way to talk to the ground was the B channel, which was recorded on an onboard tape recorder and periodically uploaded to the ground and transcribed. The purpose of the B channel was to allow the astronauts to pass along their thoughts about such things as habitability issues on Skylab, things that were not urgent but were needed for future reference. Additionally, the crews were given questionnaires about aspects of life aboard Skylab and would dictate their answers into the intercom on B channel. Moving around to my left here, we have one of our intercom boxes. This is what we use to talk to the ground or to talk to one another anywhere in the spacecraft. We have 13 of these in the spacecraft. We can merely walk up, punch the transmit button, and either talk to the ground or to one another in the spacecraft. Or we can plug our headset into the side and talk through a headset. So that's our means of communication. 
Ground communication with Skylab was not continuous. Remember, it was 1973. The communication system inherited by Skylab was called the Spacecraft Tracking and Data System. It consisted of 12 stations around the world. Bermuda, Grand Canary Island, Ascension Island, St. John's, Newfoundland, Madrid, Carnarvon and Honeysuckle Creek, Australia, Guam, Hawaii, Goldstone, California, Corpus Christi, Texas, Merritt Island, Florida. Additionally, the ship Vanguard off the east coast of South America and sometimes even an aircraft using the call sign Araya would fill the gaps during launch and re-entry. Therefore, communication between Skylab and Houston took place only in brief passes over these stations, often mixed by an hour or more of silence. The crew was able to tell where they were around the world by Houston's calls. For example, Skylab Houston, with you at Guam for eight minutes. Continuing the tour. The waste management compartment was located directly to the left of the sleep compartments. This room incorporated a water dispenser that was the microgravity equivalent of a sink, a mirror for the astronaut's personal hygiene, and of course, the space toilet. Due to the duration of the missions, Skylab required a greater level of innovation in this area that had certainly not been achieved in previous spaceflights. Remember the bag base system used on previous spaceflights for defecation? This had not been particularly pleasant, but there was not enough room on the smaller vehicles for a better means of dealing with fecal matter. For the relatively short durations of those missions, the astronauts just had to grin and bear it. But Skylab involved both a long enough duration mission to make it worth it to create a better solution. And of course, Skylab had the room as well to improve things. To urinate an astronaut simply stood in front of the collection facility with his feet straps to hold him in place. He urinated directly into a funnel equipped with a little airflow to draw urine into individual collection bags, one for each astronaut. For defecation, the crewman rotated about 180 degrees and seated himself on a small chair attached to the wall. It was somewhat reminiscent of a child's potty chair, but this potty chair was equipped with a plastic bag placed beneath the seat for each use, which maintained a simple and hygienic interface with the astronaut. The chair had a lap belt and handholds to help the crewman to stay in one place. As with the urine system, airflow was used instead of gravity. 
the astronaut was next required to measure the mass of his fecal bag and then place it in a heating unit and lastly expose it to vacuum, which had the effect of drying the contents completely. Now, the fecal bags was then much lighter and quite hygienic. The dried feces and samples of the urine were saved and returned to Earth for post-mission analysis. Now let's move on around to the uh, bathroom area, or the waste management compartment as we call it in space jargon. This is the waste management compartment. In it we have for going to the bathroom and for uh, collecting our waste and, uh, and processing it so that we can take it back to the ground. Also we have uh, wash-up facilities here and this is where we shave and brush our teeth and so forth. Okay, this is our sink or hand washing area. Here's our soap. It has a little metal tab on the back so we can fasten it to this magnet so it won't float away. We have hot water too. There's a water heater above this so which holds about a gallon of water and uh, through this little spigot we can push it and water comes off. You see how it floats around and kind of clings to you. And it just clings to the sink area back here. When we want to, we just wipe it up. We have a way to uh, squeeze out our wash rags using this squeezer. We simply uh, take a wet rag, put it in this little container, put the squeezer over and squeeze. Now the water goes down into a bag that's been evacuated. Takes the moisture out. And we get a relatively dry rag, and then we can rinse off much as you would at home. As we move around uh, to my left here, you'll notice that uh, for those of you who uh, lived on a farm in the good old days, in fact, uh, some this is a good old days for lots of farmers, uh, we have a one-holer. Uh, this one-holer is uh, somewhat different than the one that uh, you're however. Uh, as you... Uh, no, of course, uh, our one hole is back on the ground, uh, everything goes down. But the things don't go down here, so we have to treat it a little bit differently. Uh, you'll notice the other thing that's new and different about this is, is that it's on the wall. And that we sit on the wall to do our thing here in Skylab, and of course it doesn't make any difference. Simply uh, grasp the handles firmly and uh, put yourself in the proper position and one thing you don't want to forget to do is to turn on your blower. Now, the reason we have this blower is so that air can be sucked in this manner and take the contents and push it toward the back of the bag. And since it doesn't uh, drop uh, into the water as it does at home in your uh, 1G toilet, we have to have this blower device to uh, take the uh, contents and take it to the back of the bag. And in here we have a bag that... Uh, after we turn off our blower, we can seal, seal around the top. Of course, all of this has to be analyzed by doctors back at home, and you can imagine that 56 days of this for three men would be a pretty big blivet. So what we have to do is dry it, and we have dryers for that purpose. Now, after we have sealed this, we have first to determine what its mass is, wet, its wet mass, and so we have a mass measuring device in this little compartment, and we take this bag with its contents, secure it 
of the mass measuring device. Turn it on. And it oscillates back and forth. And depending on how heavy it is or how massive, why well, it oscillates at a different frequency, which is then converted to a weight. We record that on the little tab on the bag, along with who it belongs to and what the time and date is. And then we dry this. This is dried by placing it into what we call a fecal dryer. And here you see we have six fecal dryers. For example, let's uh, try this one right here. Now it has a vacuum on it. Each one of these little dryers is, can be open to a uh, space vacuum. And the bag, here's one that's been uh, dried already. The bag has uh, got a little filter in it. We place it in a fecal dryer, close the door, and open the vacuum valve. Now to accelerate this process, we have a heater. We can set that heater uh, on a timer. We can determine what the time is by uh, the mass or the weight of the contents in the bag. And when the timer times up, the contents is dry, and it comes up in the form that, that uh, you saw it here. We can then take this bag and seal up the little filter uh, through which it was dried, take off this green tape, take this little flap, seal it together, and put it away for storage back home. The bag is, the contents of the bag now are completely dry and ready for transport back home and analysis. And then, of course, we have to put another bag in here. Okay, we simply uh, take a bag out of our bag locker, install it in here, and uh, seal it in there in the proper manner, and we're uh, off and running again. Now, we also, of course, have to urinate, just like you do at home, and we each uh, have to uh, save a sample of our daily urine. So we each have a, uh, a urine receiver drawer, which, which you use uh, with the same blower that we use for the fecal collector. We can use this tube to uh, urinate into, turn on our blower, and the air entrains the urine and takes it down into a bag, which is contained down into this drawer. And I can show you this drawer and what it looks like. Inside of this green box, there's a bag. We use one bag per day to collect uh, our daily urine. And every day we take this bag out and sample it. We have the uh, mechanism right here for sampling this uh, urine. We mix it up and fasten the sample bag to it. And take a sample of that urine and freeze it. After the urine is uh, sampled, we take the uh, little sample bag and put it in a freezer down here. I can show you one of these uh, samples that was taken just this very morning. It's already quite hard. This is the size of a sample that we bring home from each day's urine. And then the rest of the urine is thrown away in our trash airlock, which I'll show you in a short time. So that's how we handle the waste on Skylab. It's a no fuss, no muss operation. The whole system works very well, and we're very pleased with it. We haven't had any spills yet, and uh, we don't anticipate we will. It's very clean and very sanitary, and a system that uh, those who design it can be proud of.
The wardroom was to the left of the waste management compartment. The wardroom was the station's combination kitchen, dining, medical center, and meeting room. It was called the wardroom because the first crew was all Navy, and they pretty much got to name things. In a Navy ship, the wardroom is the officer's dining and meeting room. Skylab's high-tech kitchen table was in the center of the room. Its round center was surrounded by three leaves, one for each astronaut. The flat surface of each of the leaves was actually a lid which could be released with the push of a button. Beneath the lids, there were six holes in which food containers could be placed. Three of them could be heated to warm food. The trays used magnets to keep the utensils from floating away. The table included water dispensers, which could provide the astronauts with both hot and cold water. To keep themselves in place while eating, both thigh constraints and foot loops on the deck were provided for the crew. The walls of the wardroom were lined with storage lockers and a small refrigerator freezer for food storage. The wardroom was one of the most popular places on Skylab for spending time, mainly because it had the largest window on Skylab. The window could be used for earth viewing or stargazing. Now let's move on into the wardroom area. We have a place for each man to uh, position himself around this central table. Uh, we should probably call it the uh, kitchen and dining room all combined into one. Now, kids, don't do that at home because your mother won't like it, but it's real easy to do up here. This uh, area doubles uh, as many things. We, uh, of course, eat here and make our meals. We also use this for a medical clinic and for looking out the window. Our meals come in cans. The new housewife, that would be a good deal. Like this. Some require water to be added, and uh, others come without uh, requiring uh, addition of water at all. We keep uh, a whole week's supply of food in this pantry. We have more in other places to restock it with. We have beverages that come in these kind of plastic folded containers to which we just add water. This is our water charging station. Put the beverage on or any kind of food that requires the addition of water, press it and fill it up with the required amount. We have the same thing for hot water. We don't have to heat all of our food, we just add hot water to it and cook it. We also have some frozen foods. One frozen item per day per man, approximately. We just set it right on here. Frozen foods come in the freezer, of course, in cans again. We have a refrigerator just like you have at home, in which to keep foods chilled, primarily drinks, or things like strawberries, for example. Here's a can of strawberries I already mixed up for my meal today. I'll let them set in water a little bit, and there you are. We also keep our medicines in the refrigerator to uh, keep some of them cool. Now, if you're newly married, I guess maybe this is good by for a while, but after a while, eating out of cans or something that I think your husband won't appreciate too much. But for the moment, it's okay. Our window. 
we'd like to spend more time looking out this window than they really get a chance to do. The Earth is a very beautiful thing. We pass over it at 275 miles. So take a look out the window and see what the Earth looks like from 275 miles, moving at 18,000 miles an hour around the ground. That's four miles a second. Now we're over the water. I believe we're uh, coming up on the uh, Western Pacific uh, around uh, close to San Francisco somewhere. said the earth is very beautiful the sky is always black there's always a beautiful blue ring around the horizon we have a map with which we can tell we have a map with which we can tell where we are all the time just by looking at it we can see where we are in our orbit we make one orbit in 93 minutes just a little over an hour and a half so you can see we cover a lot of ground and see a lot of territory and see lots of places we'd like to go back to and spend more time we can cover the whole United States from sea to shining sea in a period of about 10 minutes. Well, let's move on around here. We have several lockers in which we uh, store things. And uh, in this uh, room, we also have an entertainment kit, a place where we can play some music. It's located right behind here. We have a tape recorder. We all have our personally selected tapes that we can play, much uh, sometimes to the annoyance of our colleagues, but uh, usually not. And we have books. Each man has about four books that he can read. Uh, so far, we haven't had a chance to read any books, but we uh, have them along just in case we have an opportunity. We have some binoculars in here that we can uh, look at things a little more closely out the window with. And... Uh, number of other things that uh, we could use if we ever had time. But mostly we use the music. We enjoy the music very much. We just play it like you would in your home. Just in the background. As I was saying before, this is uh, also uh, sort of a medical clinic. We have a number of lockers here which are devoted to medical supplies. Uh, for example, in the upper locker we have all of our drugs. way in the second locker. We have a number of drugs and medicines we need them. And here we have a microbiology kit. A kit to study your blood or your determine what that illness is and what kind of medicine that it might respond to. We have an incubator in which we can incubate the bacteria and let it grow. We also uh, various implements uh, to do minor types of first aid with. For example, we can suture things, suture cuts. We can perform, uh, of course, emergency first aid. Uh, we have intravenous solutions which we can inject. We have other kinds of injectable drugs as well in the event that they're needed. So that's our wardroom, or our kitchen area, as you call it back on Earth. The largest portion of the bottom floor was the experiment area, where several of the major medical experiments were located. The lower body negative pressure experiment 
was a cylindrical device which a crewman would enter, legs first, until the lower half of his body was inside. Then a pressure seal was made around his waist. Suction was used to decrease the pressure against his lower body relative to the atmospheric pressure around his upper torso. This pressure difference would cause more blood to pool in the astronaut's lower extremities, simulating the conditions he would experience when he returned to a 1G environment on Earth. Yeah, one other medical experiment here that you might be interested in. Uh, it's called the lower body negative pressure. That's a big name, but it tells us that we put our lower body in here and subject it to some sort of a vacuum. And uh, its purpose is to measure a man's uh, response over a long period of space flight. It's uh, the response of his heart and cardiovascular system. The doctors on the ground to see how we're performing cardiovascular-wise for a long time in space. The way this works is that it just floats in here like so. The ergometer was also in the experiment area. It was essentially a wheelless exercise bike modified for use in microgravity. Similar to its earthbound cousins, the ergometer featured pedals, a seat, and handlebars, but it also included electronic equipment for biomedical monitoring. A metabolic analyzer was used with the ergometer to monitor the crew's respiration. The device itself was enclosed in a rectangular box with a hose connected to a mouthpiece. The astronaut would put on a nose clip and then breathe in and out through the mouthpiece. The analyzer could measure respiration rate and breath volume and also Using a mass spectrometer, the composition of the air the crewman exhaled, and thus oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production. They're touring, and uh, this is a uh, an ergometer or a bicycle. This is uh, used in combination with one of our medical experiments, and it's also used by us for exercise. We can uh, put any load we want to on our body by cranking up a the load device. Now you can mount this bike very easily, much more so than you can your bike on Earth, as you notice. Just uh, clip your foot in the foot pedals here and uh, set the load that you want right on here. Say we'll set it up to about 250 watts. Start pedaling. The more watts you set in there, the harder it is to pedal. And the faster you, harder you have to work. 
and you can set enough load on this to wear yourself out in short order if you want to. We also have a way to measure our heart rate, and this reads out our heart rate in beats per minute as we're pedaling. Of course, the harder you pedal, why the harder your heart has to work, and the better it is for your cardiovascular heart system. While we're pedaling this bicycle during the medical experiment, our breath is analyzed in this metabolic analyzer so that our uh, pulmonary system can be thoroughly evaluated during the period that we're up here. Of course, the purpose of this bike medically is to determine the man's capability to put out a certain amount of work over a long period of time in space. Measure his capability to do work as a result of spaceflight. Another experiment on the first floor of the workshop was the human vestibular function device, which was essentially a rotating chair. With an astronaut sitting in it, the chair could be rotated about the axis of the subject's spine at speeds up to 30 revolutions per minute. The chair would spin in a clockwise or counterclockwise direction. The goal of the experiment was to test how astronauts' vestibular systems, which are responsible for balance and detection of rotation and gravity, adapted to microgravity environments. The experiment was performed with the astronauts on the ground, first to provide a baseline, and then was done again in orbit to compare the results. In front of me here, uh, we have one of our uh, medical experiments. This is the rotating chair. The purpose of the rotating chair is to determine the response of the vestibular system to zero gravity. And we've been doing many experiments on this to see how the balance mechanism in the inner ear is affected by weightlessness. Up here is the control panel for controlling this experiment and for making the various inputs which go down on telemetry to the ground related to the vestibular experiment. The final major experiment was the Skylab station itself. It was all part of research into long-duration spaceflight habitability factors. Now, with all the medical experiments going on, there had to be some serious sweating. This brings us to the shower. Believe it or not, the shower was located in the larger open experiment area instead of the waste management area, which was really considered the station bathroom. This was because of the way the lower deck was divided and because the shower was a latter addition to the space station's equipment. Of course, water posed a potential hazard in Skylab. In weightlessness, water coalesced into spheres, which could float around the spacecraft. If they weren't collected, they presented the risk that they could get into electronic devices or other equipment and cause short circuits or other damage. Small amounts of water were easily managed, but large amounts were generally avoided in spaceflight. So, to wash their hands, for example, astronauts would squirt water into a cloth and then clean their hands with it rather than putting the water directly on their hands.
The Skylab shower provided a true spaceflight luxury. Now astronauts could clean themselves in a way that was somewhat similar to the way they would shower on Earth. To take a shower, an astronaut would pull a cylindrical curtain up around themselves and then squirt warm water directly on their bodies using a handheld spray nozzle. Since the water was confined within the curtain, it posed no risk to the spacecraft, and after the shower, the water could be removed with towels or a suction device. In practice, the crews found the suction device was inadequate for drying off completely, and therefore used many towels. We have here, I'm in the middle of it now, a shower. We have uh, the opportunity to take a bath about once a week, whether we need it or not. And our shower holds about three quarts of water, and it's about as big as a phone booth. Down to the floor here, so it won't float around. But uh, when we want to use it, we just raise it in this manner. We attach it to this ring around the top, and in here we take our shower. Of course, the water floats all over. Doesn't stay in one place. As our tour comes to a close, let's proceed to the center of the lower floor of Skylab, the exact opposite point from where the tour began. This was where the trash airlock was located. I'm sure you remember the S-4B stage from which Skylab was modified had two tanks that originally were used to store the propellant, a larger tank for the fuel, liquid hydrogen, and a smaller tank for the oxidizer, liquid oxygen. The entire crew area of the workshop was inside the stage's liquid hydrogen tank. The liquid oxygen tank, which was exposed to vacuum, was used to store trash. Between the two tanks was an airlock that was used to transfer trash into the storage area. The oxygen tank was vented to space, so it was at a vacuum. This made it useful to help pull the trash through, but it also had a screen to prevent any trash from escaping. This well-planned arrangement meant that the waste generated on Skylab was stored safely instead of becoming orbital debris. Now we'll move on to the trash airlock and uh, show you what happens to our trash. We have, of course, uh, lots of dirty towels and clothes and, and uh, tin cans and, and uh, urine bags and everything we throw out every day. And we don't want to throw them out into space, and so uh, we contain them in a holding tank, which is down below the crew quarters area here. It is actually the uh, used oxygen tank from uh, this rocket stage when it was used to uh, lift men into orbit. This is the <laughs> It uh, is, is, in fact, an airlock, and into it we can put all of our trash and eject it down into this holding tank. It does not go out into space, but stays right in that holding tank, and I'm sure it's filling up now, but there's a lot of room to, to uh, I'll open this up for you once so you can take a look at it. Now we can take a uh, disposal bag, which is uh, this size right here. Seal it up after it's full. This one is not full, but seal it up and uh, fasten it into the trash airlock. 
little tabs, which are split so that when we push it down, it will go. Close the lid. And use the ejector handle, which is this. First, of course, we have to uh, vent it to vacuum. And then we use this ejector handle to push the contents down into the trash locker or the big holding tank below. Then we can repressurize this airlock and throw something else into it. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 395 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab, The Tour, Part 2. Folks, I'm sorry I ran so long on this one. I will try to hurry through all this outro stuff. Our next episode shall be released, should be released by August 25th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 215 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. Had only one afterthought, and that was Skylab was an amazing station, and I wish we could have had more of them sent up. Oh, and of course... Skylab had a great improvement in hygiene. For those interested in the house project, uh, there's really nothing new that has happened in the past two weeks. No, no new work has been done. But I do want to thank those of you who wrote in about the basement crack, cracks. That was very informative, and I appreciate your taking the time to write in to me on that. Over the past fortnight, we received three donations. And I would like to thank Keith M. from North Carolina who donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Peter M. from California sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level. Ben B. donated at the Mercury level. Thank you very much. Our total Patreon donors have dropped to 247. I hope that number is not accurate because they seem to do the same thing last month. And then it went back up, so I'm hoping that number is not accurate. You know the goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 335 with an overall goal of reaching 500 for the year, which we have never done. We have clearly reached the dog days of summer. This happens every year when donations go down, and I get nervous. But this year has been a dog year, really, with just a few exceptions all year. So, if you are enjoying the podcast, especially during these dog days of summer, without commercial interruption, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you may donate by mail, which works great for me. Just send me an email, and I'll give you my address. The email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. 
Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. It's time for the drawing. The winner will have the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Kevin Crovo. Kevin Crovo, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 335 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt. Flickr, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 396 posted by August 25th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.